ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our next episode of Scraps, a podcast where we explore the stories of scientific brilliance that underpins innovation. And our guest today was the first name that I wrote down as soon as we conceived this podcast. And I'm very, very glad that he is here. Just a few brief words here. As scientists, we, a vast majority of them, at least the ones that I know, um, stay in their comfort zone in terms of their capabilities. They stretch out a little in terms of what's going on. Um, but our guest today is on a whole different league. Um, he goes after some of the most toughest problems. And in fact, I must say, the problems go after him, it looks like, um, more often than not. And he just seems to seem, seems to be a magnet that seems to attract the iron. Um, he's a true source of inspiration for me personally. Um, I met him when I was doing my graduate school. And it has been a great honor, privilege. Um, and I cannot contain my excitement uh, that is here today. Please welcome to Scraps, uh, Professor Kit Parker. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, um, Dr. Parker, one thing I want to ask quickly, because Arun made this very clear, you were his absolute first choice for, for a guest when we were sketching out who would be on. And um, he seemed to hold you in equal parts of regard and almost contempt because he was, <laughs> he was, he was so remarkable excited. because we've never dated. So... Um... <laughs> He was excited to to come and join your lab at the at the prospect of being a postdoc in your lab, and things that evidently were rolling along, and then he never heard from you, and you just disappeared off the face of the earth. Can well, before we go you? there, Kit, okay. do you actually remember the very first time that we met? Yes, I was visiting Ohio State. No, it was way before that. It was a few months before that. It was a garden conference in two thousand six. And oh, yeah, okay. you stood up there, so there was all these highly respected cardiac electrophysiology researchers. And then on the third day, this person, um, who I now know as Kit Parker, um, stands up. And the first thing that he says was, the way you guys do work in cardiac biology to understand how the heart works is absolute nonsense. And I have these brand new cool things that I have actually I'm working on, and I'm going to tell you a story. I might fall on my face and hurt my nose, but I don't care. But this is what it's going to be. So that was my first introduction to, to Kit. And afterwards, uh, we got talking, and he came to my poster, et cetera, and he wanted to kind of put back his laptop back in, the, in his hotel room. And he said, why don't you walk with me to my room so that I can just put this on, and that way we'll get some some time to talk. And I was telling him about myself, and he said, you need to come and do a postdoc with me. And I said, absolutely. And then I, a few months later, he comes over. I was the head of the student body, uh, kind of managing the seminars at the time for a short period. I invited Kit over. Uh, he came to the university. And then I thought, I really know Kit well. So once I finish my PhD, I'm going to apply for a postdoc. I send him an email. He doesn't respond until a year and a half later, by which time I was already kind of had moved now, on. What year, was that email? what year was that email? It was, I know the reason, Kit. You actually put the country first, and I cannot fault you for that. <laughs> yeah, I think I was in Afghanistan in 2009. I think that was it. And, I, and then I wound up back in Afghanistan uh, again in 2011. So, uh, 
Yeah, I apologize for that. My, like loss, that. my loss, right? My loss. When you put it like that, nobody can find fault with you, right? So it's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to say I'm really upset with you? But nevertheless, it's been an absolute privilege to kind of follow you through. And in fact, my biggest privilege is that I've seen Kit had just started off at Harvard around the time that when I first met him. And it has been an absolute privilege to see him go into multiple directions that I personally have not seen any other uh, person go into. And the diversity of his research, et cetera, is, I think, a great uh, source of inspiration. And I hope we get to hit on some of those strands here today, Kit. Well, thanks. I really appreciate you holding me in such high regard. Uh, it might be because you have a limited pool of people to consider. But um, listen, it's been fantastic to watch you move on from Ohio State and be a success. And uh, it's an honor to be a guest with you here today in JoJo, with JoJo. So I'm going to jump in for just a second because you sort of glossed over this this whole part that is not a typical part of a researcher's trajectory, which is two tours in Afghanistan. That's those are those are not seemingly related tracks. So, can you tell us a little yeah, bit about I, 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 Call the Duty? I was actually over there four times. Uh, after a while, it just all blends together. I had uh, watched the first when I was in graduate school. I watched the first Gulf War on CNN. And I, when I had grown up, when I was as a child, I only wanted to do three things. I wanted to play baseball. Um, I had a little. I liked to play army with my friends, and I had a. Sears chemistry set and a secondhand microscope my grandfather, Kit Parker, had given me. I had this little trashy lab set up in our garage out in rural Texas. I dragged back roadkill or whatever else it was to experiment on or dissect. And um, I wanted to be a ball player. I wanted to be a soldier and I wanted to be a scientist. And uh, after a while, it became very clear that I wasn't going to be able to hit the curveball or the fastball. So I'm not a baseball player, but um Science and Army are things I've been doing since I was a kid, and now I just do it with better equipment and uh, higher stakes. But, uh, yeah, I've been able to do that. I, I didn't join the, the Army until I was in graduate school, and I was watching the first Gulf War on CNN. And, you know, I was in my early 20s, and I realized, hey, this is it. My life's happening now. The dreams that I had as a kid, the things I wanted to do, you, you got to do now. You got one shot. So I went through basic training. I had a a thesis advisor, John Wixell, down at Vanderbilt, who was very supportive of his students and uh, took some time off, went through basic training, went through officer training and got commissioned. And so I've had kind of these two parallel careers, both in the military and the reserve components and in science. And then obviously when 9-11 happened, they kind of collided. So um, I spent, uh, you know, between 2002 and 2011, kind of zigzagging back and forth between Afghanistan and, and, and Harvard. And then uh, a couple of stateside mobilizations, one in support of Special Operations Command when um, 2012, 2013, and then uh, a little bit of time working on a report for the National Security Council, National Security Staff of the White House. So, um, yeah, you know, I've, I, I don't think I would have been happy just doing one thing, uh, but it's been really hard to do two things simultaneously. But, uh, you know, sometimes when it gets really hard, you don't know because the people you're with are so good. So I've had some sucky jobs, but I was there with good people, so I, I couldn't tell how bad they sucked. And that's certainly the way it is when it comes to war. And um, so I'm, I'm richer for the experience. You know, I joined the Army to give back, and I, I feel like my debt has just grown. So That's that's pretty exciting. I, I, and, and, and I think the, um, the dream of, of living out two different dreams simultaneously is, is something that 
a lot of people feel like can't be achieved. So it's great to hear when it does happen and that there is hope to do it. You know, being a college professor and being an army officer, I mean, the, the primary, you know, the actuators in the laboratory and on the battlefield are these, you know, 18 to 30 year old young people who are driven. So you really become kind of a student of how to motivate them, how to push them and what they're capable of. So tools I've learned in leadership in the army have gone back into the laboratory. Things I've learned on a college campus and the lab have gone back into, you know, leading young people in the military. So I'm fortunate in that the the substrate I'm working with, these 18 to 30 year old people is kind of the same in both. So you might be surprised at how similar some of these leadership challenges are. I'm also curious because there seems to be a, a third component where you find creativity and in, in something that I've noticed in some of the research I've done is that your daughter seems to be standing right by your side when you come up with some of these ideas. Yeah. So the, the, the bio hybrids and the um, sort of using a, a jellyfish or a medusoid to, to start to engineer a human heart. And then I think there was, there was another moment that I read about, but I wonder what if we dot, dot, dot moments, she seems to be close at hand too. Well, you know, I, I'm a, yeah, I mean, my daughter is, um, you know, she's my wife. Right. But, uh, I watching her grow and develop and it was interesting. I always keep these notebooks of ideas and early on, so she was able to pick up a pencil. She started keeping these notebooks too. And um, I keep my ideas in there. And when we would talk about these notebooks that she had and asked what these are, I noticed that, that she wasn't distinguishing between like a science idea and an artistic idea. And I thought to myself, why would we do that? And in this whole idea of watching her, my daughter's very creative, watching her develop as kind of a creative force. And realizing that this frustration I feel sometimes with educating scientists and engineers is that we beat the creativity out of these kids during a typical science and engineering curriculum. And so I had a eureka moment in this office one time. I had a student that was sitting at this conference table behind me. It's covered with junk now. And this guy was having trouble with an experiment. And he's trying to explain it to me. We were having difficulty communicating. So I said, just draw a picture. And my daughter had, is here quite a bit. That's a lot of stuff in the background is, is, is her stuff. And I said, she had a box of 64 crayons, right? I said, just draw a picture. And um, so the, the student, graduate student, picked up the crayons and started drawing the picture on a piece of scratch paper with crayons. And they became almost giddy. And I watched the stress and tension just drain out of them as the fun of using these crayons to draw the schematic of this experiment. And so I almost had like this experience, I don't want to call it out of body, but like I was like moved away from the situation. And I'm watching this kid with an Ivy League degree already trying to get a PhD using an instrument of his childhood that he might not have picked up in upwards of 15 or 20 years. The tension went away. Suddenly it was on his creative turf. And it dawned on me that we're doing something wrong. I mean, if you're doing STEAM curriculum K through five, you're not doing it right. You can't do it K through 12. You got to do it lifetime. And so that started a journey where I started watching very carefully my daughter and implementing things. I'll give you an example. We started a, a tradition of 
couple of years ago where um, I once a year I buy I get a couple of cases of Play-Doh. Now we do it. We ran out of pub and, and everyone brings their families. Everyone has to make a Play-Doh model of their experiment. We take everyone's children and we form a committee and they go around and you have to present your Play-Doh model of your experiment to the children and they judge your Play-Doh model and your explanation. And you do that routinely as part of your lab, like huh? yeah, it's like once a year or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me tell you about the funny thing. The first time, my, our our group meetings are kind of like a gypsy camp. People are coming and going. You never know who's going to show up. So the first time we did this, I had two gynecological surgeons show up, one from South Africa and one from the Netherlands. And they were interested in our nanofiber technology to make meshes for pelvic organ prolapse. So you can imagine the Play-Doh models that they created. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is going to fly well with these students here. You know, everyone's so sensitive about everything. But it immediately communicated to everybody the challenges their patients were facing. But now the great thing about this Play-Doh model is because you can rearrange it in space and time really quick. I have a really good diagnostic of the people in my laboratory and whether or not they really understand what they're working on. And so we can quickly diagnose. So Play-Doh is like a part of my laboratory. I mean, it's here on my desk. I mean, there's Play-Doh everywhere here because we can quickly do a model, which we can change in space and time to make sure we're tracking on this. Where did this come from? My daughter playing Play-Doh all the time. And me having Play-Doh here in my office when she'd come and hang out and us playing around with it and then me grabbing it with a student. And finally I said, this needs to be institutionalized as part of our group. So my daughter and I go, and we have a lot of creative ideas, and, uh, you know, going to the New England Aquarium was where a lot of our ideas have come from, because, you know, I, I was there with her one time when we had this idea, and it dawned on me, you know, one of my big interests, uh, Arun and I have a common interest in the heart, and um, the heart is a muscular pump, and if you go and take a look at marine life forms, with the exception of crustaceans, almost all their musculature is developed around pumping, pumping as they swim or they're pumping fluids to their body. And so it dawned on me that the fundamental rules of muscular pumps are unknown to us. That's why we have difficulty treating different forms of heart disease, like diastolic heart disease. And so I'm watching my daughter run around, and I'm having these eureka moments about, hey, listen, in the end, I should be able to build these things with the common physiological attributes of the biophysical principles that underlie the heart. And so we've started doing that and realizing what's important and what's a fact versus what's assumed in terms of the way the heart's built. So I'm very fortunate in that my daughter tolerates these kind of creative things. And uh, when I taught a barbecue class at Harvard, I would bring her every Saturday, we'd smoke a brisket in Harvard yard. And, you know, I'm a dad, I'd bring her to, to Harvard yard. It turned out we had 110 inches of snow that winter when we were smoking brisket out there. She'd try to, she would be riding her bicycle around the pass of Harvard Yard. That's how she learned how to ride her bicycle. We'd smoke brisket, and then she'd judge it, and then she'd be taking smoke brisket to school on Mondays. And so that, and then I went to ice cream school. I got her involved with making ice cream with me at home. And it's fun to have a creative partner who um, is, uh, I mean, I make it, I teach a fashion class. She likes to play dress up. We do barbecue because we're Southerner. She eats barbecue. She thinks I teach classes about her life. What else would you teach classes about? This is what we do, right? Uh, and so um, it's a lot of fun to do that. But the life lesson for my trainees is that family time is not a distraction from your job. Family time can be a very important part of your creative engine if you do it right. 
And so the idea of my trainees using their parenting time, making a dress uh, for a child, working in the yard, doing crafts in the garage, doing something in the kitchen like my daughter and I spend a lot of time doing, that should be part of your creative engine. Uh, so family time can be a very important career enhancement. And um, I think maybe the, 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 the most important thing or the tertiary effect of this is that people see me spend time with my daughter and they say, wow, you can balance your career and your parenting. You can be a good and attentive parent. And the same type of creativity you show as a parent you show in a lab. Several years ago, I was at a Google meeting um, and I had the opportunity to sit at dinner with Kanye and with Larry Page. And we were talking about creativity and Larry was saying something to the effect of, hey, you know, I just didn't want to do search. So we do driverless cars and other things at Google. Kanye was saying, hey, you know, I didn't want to just do music. That's why I do fashion. And, and you know, I was trying to explain some of the stuff that happens in this, you know, crazy lab that I run. And what we realized is that creativity is not specialized. And you should broadly develop your creative skills. And so, uh, Joe, you and I were talking a moment ago about how we read the hobbies. You know, if you collect stamps and do bird watching and read books, that's not as interesting to me than if you do light construction, you cook, you sew, or you do sculpture then I know that you're creative. And I, I just, just to, I don't mean to belabor this to but I'm going to bring one more point in. Several years ago, I got asked, uh, I was back visiting my family down south, and a girl that had gone to high school, now she's, a, she's an attorney, went to high school with my sister, called me, heard me, I was in town, said, hey, listen, there's this kid, he's um, early 20s, hadn't had a whole lot of mentoring or breaks in life, but he's going to community college now for the first time. He's taking a biology class. He's really excited. Would you would you meet with him and talk to him? I said, you know, i got to catch a flight tomorrow morning. But if he meets me at the Waffle House at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'll buy him breakfast and we can talk a little bit. Show up at 5 a.m. in the, in the Waffle House down there. It's still dark down there in, in Georgia where we were. And we start talking a little bit. I say, hey, listen, take a few more classes. And if you get interested and get some traction, give me a call. Maybe come spend a summer up in my laboratory. It's really kind of exciting for him. You know, just a kid with talent. An interest who never had an adult show any interest in them. So I've been delivering pizzas for a living ever since you graduated from high school. So we pay the bill and we walk out into the parking lot. As I'm going to my little crappy little red rental car, there's this really souped up hot rod right next to it. And all these beeps go off, you know, like, you know, when you unlock your car with the little clicker in your hand. I'm like, hey, man, is this your ride? And he goes, yeah. I said, man, this is, I said, this is really nice. He goes, well, I got to do this. I got to do that. Work on this. I said, wait a second. You, you built this thing? And, and he said, yeah. And I said, hey, man, why didn't you tell me that? The skill set you required to do the body work and the engine and the electrical system, I, I can put you to work in the lab immediately. This is a because skill set. condition to say things a certain way, right, kid? I think, I think yeah. Well, that's the point is he didn't realize that these things that were his avocation could actually be his vocation. He didn't realize that that the stuff that he probably never would have put on a resume could be work, put to work immediately in a laboratory or a startup company, an academic lab, an industrial lab, a startup company. He didn't realize he had to start. And I'm driving away and I'm thinking, we're doing this all wrong. My job as a professor is to find and cultivate talent. And if all I'm doing is looking at kids with college degrees and going through a regular college system, I'm going to miss so much. So we've opened up our laboratory. We have the artists coming in. We have community college kids coming in. we got a lot of talent in the laboratory now. And the idea is that these are talents that aren't always going to wind up on a resume. 
And for the leader, both in industry and academia, your job is to maintain a situational awareness. So you can find that idea from the pizza guy, from uh, your, 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 your 10-year-old or 9-year-old daughter, you know, from that person who's got a skill set that they think maybe wouldn't translate to the lab. But the most important thing is just get as much creative energy in your laboratory as possible. And that's why we ripped out part of my lab and made a studio space for artists. The idea was we wanted to bring in these artists who have a really high cycle time and just jack up the creative mojo to an energy level that never been seen in a science lab. And so now we've got artists, filmmakers, all kinds of cats coming through the lab. And uh, it's a lot of fun because of that. And the creative creativity of my graduate students and postdocs has just gone off the charts since this experiment happened. So it's a real lesson in, in creative financing because you got to pay the salaries, all these artists and, um, and, uh, and then the way you ought to do steam as a lifelong curriculum. Yeah. So two questions on that kit. First one is creative financing. How do you pay, pay these salaries? Number one. And number two, um, I think what you say there, and and what you what you then said after that was, as a Harvard professor, I think you probably do a lot more in terms of bringing in the non Ivy League students and and creators and experts in that in various areas that you would normally not associate. I must say, dare I say, a cardiac biologist or a cardiac biomechanicist as the way you are to be working on, on something like, like this, right? So what you spoke about the inspiration for why you did this, but walk us through about what and how they are actually empowering your, your students. Uh, so I'll tell, you, I'll tell you when I first started kind of going outside the box on this was several years ago. And I had two, we had, we run a, a, a national science foundation sponsored research experience for undergraduates program here at Harvard and um, uh, Professor Eric Mazur and myself are the co-PIs on that. And early on, um, one year we just had like, I don't know what year this was, 2005, 2006, probably around about the time you and I met. But um, we had a couple of, I ran into a kid who was a Marine, uh, Josh Goss, um, when I was giving a talk at a school down there in Arkansas. And um, I said, man, why don't you come up He's going to a small school on rural Arkansas. I said, why don't you come spend the summer with us? Right. First time we had a military veteran in the lab. And, you know, once you've handled explosives and automatic weapons, satellite radios and all kinds of things, pulling maintenance on a confocal microscope is not a big deal. Right. You're not intimidated by the equipment. Brought him into the lab. And then we had a really interesting guy apply from a college, a community college just south of here. Guys in the late 30s. Um, he has a heavy metal guy, so he was half deaf, always yelling. Um, he'd worked as a machinist. And for some reason, he'd applied to our REU program, and no one would take him because he was from a community college. So I called him up, and I said, look it, we're not like a mechanical engineering lab. We build cells, stuff with cells and tissues, and we build micro and nano stuff. But I'll bring you up here for the summer. We're teaching how to make small things if you teach us how to make big things. Uh, he came up here. Um, he came into me about two weeks into this, and he's yelling, right? Because he's like half deaf. I'm playing metal, right? And he's yelling at me. He goes, I don't know who these postdocs, I don't know what a graduate student is, but they don't know design. So I'd like to give a group meeting so I could discuss how you build things. I'm like, go for it, dude. That guy, in the course of the summer, he rebuilt everything in the lab. 
like with a precision like you've never seen. You know, this is my first year community coach that no other professor would take into his lab. And I'm like, I got to keep this guy in our community because the problem is if he gets out there and have to compete against him, I know how good this guy is. So, you know, the guy was like kind of down on his luck economically. He was taking a bus back and forth to New Bedford, Massachusetts, down there on the South Shore of Boston. So I gave him some part-time hours. He'd do some CAD work for us. And then we were able to get him a job at our Center for Nanoscale Science here at Harvard. And it's just been off to the races. He's been awesome. Uh, rebuilt everything. Now he's got a fantastic career. He went off and got it, finished his bachelor's degree at Northeastern University and working over here, a very important part of the scientific community here at Harvard. But that was the eye-opener. Other faculty members came to me and said, hey, yo, why did you, uh, where'd you get this guy? I'm like, you know, you guys went for the folks from Stanford and Yale and MIT. I went to get from New Bedford Community College, and now look at this guy. So now community college talent is a very important part of uh, the flow of talent into the lab. And we've cultivated these, coll- these community college students. We've got Two of the community college students that have come through my lab are now in doctoral programs. One's in medical school. One's got a PhD in physics over at Northeastern. Both of them were military veterans. A lot of these community college students have been military veterans. So we've kind of opened it up. We're taking kids from all over that show an interest to come in. A lot of the military veterans are coming into the laboratory. It's not a problem with them. Based on technical training, they got in the military. So they can impact as a team player right away without all the science background because their ability to maintain and support and use equipment uh, is advanced relative to their peer group. So we've been able to do that. Yeah. Then I, I just want to say something about the, 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 going back to the artist. Several years ago, I was invited to be a judge on a Food Network show. And in between filming takes, I'm talking to this ju- this chef who had made a flexible chocolate. And I said, hey, man, how did you make this chocolate so flexible? He goes, I put alginate in there. Alginate's a biopolymer that we use in the lab all the time, making scaffolds for engineered tissues. Uh, my friend across the hall, Professor Dave Mooney, has been, you know, one of the pioneers in using alginate. And so it dawned on me that these chefs, um, their knowledge of applied material science was fairly extraordinary. And so it started kind of like my food journey, which has gone now to the second food company. We started in teaching food company, food classes here at Harvard. But um, we realized that these artists really know an applied knowledge of material science. And so when we bring these artists into the group, some of our most creative ideas about material science are scientific ideas come from them and how they've been able to manage materials as an artistic substrate rather than an engineering substrate. So this whole idea of taking art forms and moving them into engineering has been something that the artists have brought in there. I'm very fortunate at Harvard that we've got some discretionary funding that we can help fund artists with. I've also been fortunate that the National Science Foundation has seen the value of this. So we've been able to bring some artists in on our RU program to kind of work with our scientists. And, and, and the science education of the artists has increased. And the artistic or creativity capability of the scientists has increased. My artists get upset with me sometimes because I always talk about what the artists are doing for the science. And they say, you're missing the point, what science is doing for the art. I'm still not quite tracking that, but... The, we have a constant stream of artists that come through the lab. Sometimes they hang out for a day. Sometimes they stay for a summer. Sometimes they come back and forth. And um, it's been a, a fantastic experience to do that. So we don't pay for all of them. Uh, some of them are just summer students. Some we pay with discretionary money. Some of them do have some really cool design skills. And so for some of our, um, our sponsored work, uh, they're able to do some design work for us, which 
typically this is a skill set that maybe the scientists and engineers haven't always developed as well. So um, it's worked out well that way. Yeah. So. Oh, so I have, I have a, actually a, a quick question about this intersection of the artistic community and the scientific community, understanding that there are elements of the other in each. Yeah. But also given your military background, I, I grew up with very artistic people and managing artists is something that's, it's, <laughs> it's a no, You've hit on the big thing for me. Uh, and I've told people it's a leadership challenge, the likes of which I never anticipated. You know, you tell a soldier, hey, execute, boom, they go, right? You tell a scientist do A, B, and C, boom, they go, do it. Engineer, A, B, and C, do it. They execute. I tell an artist to do something. What I've learned is I need to cordon off like an hour in my schedule. Because if I call one of the artists in there and say, hey, this is what we need to do, I need to schedule an hour to sit and feel with them. Because it's literally like a birthing pain for them. Oh, I don't know if you should do that. I can't do that. And I have to sit there and feel with them. They have to emotionally reconcile themselves with the tasking. And, you know, I'm an army officer. It's like, what are you doing, man? Just go do it. Draw it. Paint it. Sculpt it. Just don't, don't, don't. Tell I can think failure for the scientists, but clearly I think for them it needs to be formed to a certain degree before they can actually go and do it. Uh, yeah, 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 no. And so, like, this was like this huge eureka moment because I'm bringing these contrasting cultures into the lab. And when we first started doing this, first, my first artist in the laboratory was the daughter of an army officer, Kerrigan Hudson. And so she was militarized enough where, and we had a great synergy, the two of us. She started my lab as a high school student and went on to college. Now she's going to do, I think, a PhD at MIT. So we had a great report and she grew up with an army daddy, one of my army buddies. So it wasn't an issue with her. But then when the other artists started showing up, I was like, what is this? I feel like we've hit this wall. So Jojo, you're exactly right. It's putting different cultures together. It's been a huge leadership challenge for me. And I've been very fortunate that these artists are dialed into what we're trying to do here. They get it. They understand. When artists come here and they see what we're doing, they're like, this is new. This is not the typical artist in residence who just sits around and no one knows what they're doing. The artists are supposed to be teamed up with the scientists. They're part of the creative engine that's driving this whole thing. But yeah, uh, I'm a 54-year-old full colonel in the United States Army Reserve. I like to, my ego is such, I like to feel I can lead in all kinds of crazy circumstances. Taking the artist into the group and providing that leadership took me back to leadership 101. I really had to put a pause on my, cool my jets a little bit and think about what is it that they need in a leader. It's very different than a soldier or than an engineer. And so, you know, that's been, it's actually informed me as a parent. I mean, my daughter's a very creative type. And what I've realized is that when I tell her to do something, I need to like help her have that idea. But I want to come back to um, the implied thing there. And that is that, you know, some people would think, okay, we've got the engineers over here. We've got the artists over here on an academic campus. That's, that's a disaster. The fact is, is I probably have more in common with some of the people in our art department here at Harvard than I do with some of the engineers, right? Because we just the whole idea of being a creative beast in what you're doing. And one of the challenges is uh, on most college campuses, there is absolutely no platform 
where the university's creative class all comes together. Those people that go where there's nothing and they make something. And the inability to develop a dialogue and a common substrate, uh, a library, which is basically in the Persian definition, a library is where, you know, resources are commonly available and scholars come and they gather and exchange ideas. Library, the new form of the library is the maker lab. It's the studio space. And it's got to be where all these people come together, right? Because some of your library assets are available online. It, nowhere, it no longer draws the scholars together. And we need to redefine what we think of as libraries on college campuses and start celebrating uh, uh, the idea of a creative class. It spans a transdisciplinary creative class. Where do they come together? Where do they build? And what are the cultural needs of this creative class and growing young students into the creative class in terms of how is that reflected in university administration and university leadership? Right now, I don't know of anywhere where it's currently done right. Hello, everyone. Hope all of you had fun listening to Kit uh, talk about his experiences. We had an absolute blast. However, at the very beginning, uh, before we started rolling, um, Kit was mentioning in a very casual conversation that next semester he's planning to teach a design class, which he always does every year. And next year's topic was about physics of bubblegum making. And he wants to use the laws of physics and the science of bubblegum making and the stretch and elastic properties to teach his students about physics. Jojo realized at this point of time that we were in recording and through a presence of mind, we managed to capture a part of that. Take a listen at how Kit wants to engage his students. More importantly, make their family to be part of their learning and to break the Guinness Book of World Records. And he's planning to do that at the Boston Red Sox game next year. 57 years in diameter. So I'm, I'm kind of excited. I want to teach an online class that you can only teach online. And it's got a lab. And the idea is that everyone's at home. They've got a, their kitchen is a food safe lab. And the idea is if you're going to pay this outrageous tuition for an online class, what would happen if your entire family could participate in the class with you? Your little sister, your mom's kitchen, your dad's there. And the idea of like doing computer modeling, the bubble expansion, the food science issues with what kind of gums there to get mechanical properties of the gum. The idea is the entire family could participate. So when we go to break the Guinness Book of World Records uh, uh, bubble at the end, you might be enrolled in the class, but your little sister or your father might be the best bubblegum blower. That's fine. We just want the record, right? So they get the comments. So when I called the Red Sox and asked them, say, hey, would you guys be interested in this? Because, you know, baseball and bubblegum go together. I'm a big baseball fan. They said, yeah, because we have an on-field STEM program, and uh, we could incorporate this in there. So I thought, that's awesome. So anyway. We're see. We're trying to get plan. You know, still trying to get the deans to approve it. But um, anyway, yeah, we're, we're I'm kind of pumped about it. I've been wanting to do something bubblegum for a long time. It's a lot of fun. But this is an ideal time because the whole family can get involved. That sounds fantastic. I, I think I honestly and I'm my science is is really limited to um, sort of the school of rock. Um, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. But I, I think after talking to so many of these people that we've been talking to and people I've met throughout my career, if if you guys had been teaching me science when I could have been 
um, persuaded (laughs) to spend more time on it, I I probably would have done a lot better. I I like teaching courses at the Art Science Interface. So I've taught a course. I I teach a course on fashion design every couple of years. Uh, I teach. uh, And and what we do is we get into the visual psychophysics of, of, of fashion and also the textiles and stuff. Uh, I've taught a course on barbecue. That, that's a 300-pound handmade barbecue smoker my students made. And, and now we started a company with my students. We smell bar, still barbecue. I do a little bit of work on law enforcement reform, and that started as a course using counterinsurgency methods against criminal gangs. That's an ongoing project. We're doing the 10-year anniversary of that. So trying to find ways to kind of look at that art-science interface is kind of fun. So I sometimes will have a student apply for a job as a scientist in my laboratory, and it, I always read the hobbies first. And if it says they're an artist, I ask to see the portfolio. So now one of the things I do is I hire undergraduates and their primary job when they come into the lab is to be an artist. And then they can transition into a science project because the art gives them opportunity to engage with everybody. And mm-hmm. also I get to see how, how really creative they are. So um, it's been kind of fun to explore this kind of thing. And people are less intimidated about the science if they come in from What I argue is that I have more in common with people who are just creative, no matter who they are, than necessarily other scientists, engineers. So that kind of common ground makes for like some creative synergies. That sounds great. I think I look at the hobbies, too. So we did a workshop on it was a neurotech entrepreneurs workshop with IEEE. Um, last fall and, and the students, we had uh, applicants from all over the world. And I think the most fascinating hobby that I saw was whistling. Oh, really? Yeah. That is interesting. I mean, to, to really embrace it that much that they put it on their application for this highly competitive slot, I thought was great. Yeah, no, that is cool. Yeah. I, one of the most interesting essays on a Harvard application I ever saw was a girl from Missouri who wrote her essay about fly fishing and tying her own flies. And now she's a very popular food blogger and food writer. Um, so yeah, I mean, like she, she talked about her craft and, uh, she got in, she was a good writer. So uh, they like that. Yeah. Kid, I'm actually going to, because I know you well, I, I feel that I can say this. I'm going to rein you in a bit. I'm going to take inspiration from your artist here and probably rein you in just a bit, because I think what the listeners have probably heard right now is this massive tsunami of diversity that is kind of that you do and what your folks do in in your kind of creative but i think it's it's probably important for people to appreciate where you kind of started from i think walk us through a bit from your undergrad days or let's say your transition from high school to what your i mean you did say that science was always in your interest, et cetera. Walk us through from that stage through to your undergrad and over to uh, kind of your grad school at Vanderbilt. So just walk us through the journey for, for here just so that we can appreciate uh, those aspects of So far, you've only spoken about the success fair, Kip. Uh, we want to get a bit more deeper into that. So, uh, I mean, I was very, I was, I'm the oldest of five kids. I was pretty fortunate that I had parents that supported me doing, you know, whatever I wanted to do. Sometime after I took the PSAT, uh, going to high school in rural Georgia, um, I got a little brochure from Boston University, and I had been a Boston Red Sox fan since I was a little boy when Carly Skrinski threw a bat at me in a baseball game, and um, BU, Boston University, seemed like a rather exotic thing to me, so I, I got interested in that, and fortunate, you know, my parents and grandparents had the opportunity to, to kind of do some savings so they could send me to school, so I got to BU, and 
promptly came back with a 1.3 grade point average after my freshman year. But I knew it was a place for me. I went from rural Georgia to downtown Boston. I saw these professors doing really cool stuff. I had some role models like Professor Azim Yodez, Professor Guido Sandre, um, Professor Ron Rimmel was my senior thesis advisor, uh, Professor Ken Luchin, who's now the dean of engineering over at BU, was one of my professors. Some real uh, great role models in terms of doing science and engineering, really disciplined and tough. And, you know, from a rural background, being in the city, there was a lot of stimulus there that distracted me from my studies. I was not... Um, I was not a good student. I think I, I graduated. I think my GPA was around 2.3 when I graduated uh, from, from BU. But I really kind of found my own working in people's laboratories. And I took really ambitious courses. Uh, I was my academic. I did well in the courses I like. And I blew off the courses I didn't like. So my academic record as an undergraduate wasn't something to be emulated. But I, I dug the math and um, I dug some of the science and uh, so I kind of finagled my way into Vanderbilt on a trial basis um, as a graduate student. Got a master's degree in mechanical engineering while I was working for a great physicist, uh, John Wixwell, um, who uh, appointments in both physics and biomedical engineering now, who had a laboratory that was closest to what you see now. And in our laboratory in Vanderbilt, uh, John Wixwell was like uh, an ultimate scientist in that he had... Um, People were working on cardiac electrophysiology. They were working on looking at rust in airplane parts. They were finding um, uh, parasites and fish fillets. Uh, people were doing mathematical modeling. They were building instruments. They were doing hardcore experiments. And he was a physicist by, by training. Physicist. And uh, yeah. the, the core was first principles. It all boiled down to Maxwell's equations for electromagnetic fields and a lot of this had started with, with superconducting quantum interference devices. Uh, Professor Wixwood trained under William Fairbanks at Stanford. And so that low temperature physics field in, in applications, that's what kind of fed that. And um, uh, John Wixwell, was, um, um, his, 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 his wife, Mrs. Wixwell, is a, an artist. So he kind of embraced that. We didn't have the artists in the group, but the whole idea of that example, that role model of creativity is what I had there. I stayed on and did a PhD in applied physics with, with, with John and got tremendous amount of support when I probably didn't deserve it. Um, he supported me joining the Army and taking some sabbatical, some times away from my PhD to go get some military training. And that military training, that leadership training kind of brought back into the laboratory and took up kind of a mediocre graduate student and made it into a, a very a somewhat passable graduate student. Um, after I finished my PhD there, I had some ideas about building engineered tissues. I was there when the cardiac arrhythmia suppression trial was reported out in New England Journal of Medicine. Arun, I know you're familiar with that trial. Sodium channel blockers as antiarrhythmics, and a lot of people got dead taking those drugs in the late so, 80s. And, and just for the people to understand, so I think this was one of those landmark trials where sodium channel blockers at the time was drugs that was inhibiting the sodium channels that was used to treat cardiac arrhythmias at the time uh, in the ICUs that was given to patients orally to go home to take home and 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 kind of um, kind of take the medications themselves and this was one of those early trials that was looking at that and what they found was something that changed the field of cardiac arrhythmias which was that sodium channel blockers was in fact if inappropriately used 
would actually kill people because yeah. it would it would actually produce arrhythmias. And interestingly, one of the analogs of hydroxychloroquine is one such one such sodium channel blocker. But we'll we'll leave that to the side. No, no, no. We'll let you continue the journey there. In the 80s, when they took these sodium channel blockers on there to prevent premature ventricular contractions, it turned out to be a good way to get dead. Uh, as a matter of fact, on that trial, uh, this FDA stepped in and terminated early, as I think the people on the placebo were four times more likely to survive than on the channel blocker. Then they started a second version of the cardiac arrhythmia suppression trial. Again, the FDA stepped in, stopped it because people were dying from these drugs. Now they're out there because the drugs are really cheap. But the default, if you have a rhythm problem, is some type of a device therapy. But Dan Roden, who was on my dissertation committee, was is in the uh, pharmacology department down there at Vanderbilt. And he quarterbacked that uh, cardiac arrhythmia suppression trial. And so you one couldn't be doing of, One of the greats yeah. of cardiac electrophysiology. Yeah, yeah. Dan has continues to this day to be a, a, a leader in this field. I mean, uh, I mean, he's fought some fights on behalf of patients and trying to figure out the, you know, the problems with treating arrhythmias and um, long distinguished career of being down there in the trenches. So, um, you know, you couldn't be doing cardiac work in at Vanderbilt back in the nineties, not be aware of the cardiac arrhythmia suppression trial. And so sometime I was doing, looking at arrhythmias in isolated hearts there and I had this idea that, you know, what if you just used an engineered piece of cardiac tissue so that you could, get drug data without, you know, exposing the patient to the drug. The idea, could you someday eventually use human cells to do this? And so I applied for a postdoc up at Don Ingber's lab at Children's Hospital after he published a paper uh, in science called Geometric Control of Cell Life and Death. And he had started adapting with George Whiteside from the chemistry department here at Harvard, soft lithography methods. Um, they developed soft lithography methods. They were derived from photolithography methods that we use with microelectronics to control cell shape. At the time when I was a graduate student, I've been reading these papers by a famous cardiac biologist, uh, Martin Gerdes, who was doing work back in the day when everyone was doing a deep dive on molecular cardiology. Martin was doing this work where he was looking at cell shape in patient and hearts from patients who, you know, explanted hearts from people with heart failure. And he showed, hey, listen, there's something wrong with the cell shape here because in the healthy hearts, both in rat and human, they're always about a seven to one link to width ratio. If you go into pressure old hypertrophy, that link to width ratio changes something like three to one. If you go into dilated cardiomyopathy, they stretch out, becomes 11 to one. And, and, and that is consistent whether you're a rat, a guinea pig, a dog, or a pig yeah. or a human. It's remarkable. Studies, exhaustive studies by Martin that never in the reductionist approach to cardiology were not getting the attention that they should have gotten. But for uh, a young physicist who was kind of interested in cell architecture and mechanical transduction, at the time I was in stress-induced arrhythmias, working with a cardiologist down there named David Hansen, I, I got it. I saw it immediately. And so when Ingber published this paper, in science, I think around 96, 97, I, I, I got to go work with this dude. And so, you know, I originally applied up to Ingber's lab as a postdoc, came home. I remember this. I rode my bike home late at night. I'd been to the lab all day. Got this thin letter from Children's Hospital. That's where Don was. Thanks, but no thanks. And I was infuriated. So I went up to my uh, apartment and I typed out several page long single space email to Don. I said, you know, this is blankety blank. I'm coming anyway. You get ready. And um, 
Ingberg trained under Judah Folkman and was the whole idea, you know, Folkman had been treated like a charlatan, you know, Don's words for it in the cancer field because this whole idea about killing blood vessels in order to kill tumor, choke off a tumor. And Ingber had been fighting the battles of cell architecture called tensegrity. So there's one thing that both Folkman and the Ingber in that, in that tradition there at Children's Hospital of great cell biology, you know, from Dr. Inbers to Dr. Folkman, Dr. Ingber. The other thing that they value there is audacity. So when I fired out that email to Ingber by Monday, he sent me an email and said, hey, if you haven't entertained any other office, there were no other office, there were no other applications. I knew I had to work with Ingber. I'd like you to come up and interview with me. And I went up there and interviewed and Don saw the potential in me. It certainly didn't have the value that he probably needed at the time, but he saw the potential in me to, to make a contribution. He brought me up there and uh, for a postdoc after I finished my work with uh, uh, Professor Wixwell. Did a postdoc there with uh, Don Ingber that changed my life. I learned uh, at that point in time, the, car- the cancer cell biologists were at least a decade ahead of the cardiac cell biologists. So I really learned how the, the cell, which is so important for me because now you know, I'm a cell tissue engineer. Some engineers build things out of steel, copper, wood, various polymers. I build things out of cells and they're alive and they have a vote. And that well. was the link when you stood up at the Garden Research Conference when I first saw you. When you said the cardiac biologists don't know how yeah. how our heart works, I think that was the the instigator for for making that comment. I mean, not in a in a rude way, uh, but it was more to kind of make the people sit up. So I think that was another thing that I actually learned from you, Kit, is to actually say the most provocative thing first, so that people, if they're sleeping, they actually wake up. Yeah. And even, if you're, even if you're saying the worst thing, they still listen to you. And But in your case, I think you've been surrounded by some stalwarts. And more importantly, I think yeah. even if the attitude is not to be replicated in certain situations, depending on the personality, it is about the the intent to constantly surround yourself with people who are smarter than you right from a very young age. Yeah, that I, 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 that creative intent in you, right? Yeah, I, I, I stand on the shoulders of a guy like John Wicksville, Don Ingber. Judah Folk, my other folks that really kind of took an interest in me and, and mentored me or patient with me, but I didn't on paper have a whole lot to offer their endeavors um, who, who saw some potential there. So I've been very lucky. And, you know, um, Folkman and Ingber both had to have an iron will to kind of push through ideas on angiogenesis or tensegrity. And uh, so, um, and I had a, a role model in John Wixwell and they said, you stay the course on what you're doing and your science, the field will come back to you. So I was very fortunate that. And I was also very fortunate to find people like Martin Gerdes, who later in life uh, offered some fantastic advice to me. I got to visit him in South Dakota. Now he's down at, in, in New York. And, um, you know, I used the Ingber tools in the first few years of my faculty position here at Harvard to test the Gerdes hypothesis that cell shape makes a difference. And and by God, going back to like the, I think Martin's first paper on this might have been 88, 89, throughout the 90s. Martin was right. There is an ideal cell shape for your ventricular myocytes. And when you start to tweak away from that, you're going to get some pretty jacked up effects in terms of contractility and cell behavior. And that's going to be the, uh, those are going to be the opening notes on the heart failure that's going to kill you. So I've had, uh, by paying very close attention to some of my elders in the field and by having some mentors that invested in me, um, I've been able to like, 
build some teams of some young people that have been able to go out and get some things done. So, like, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm, cool. I'm here because people opened some doors for me and, and took an interest in me. Yeah. So there's one other kind of cardiac mechanics question, and then and then we'll move on to kind of the other creative things that you do in your lab kit. It, I think there is one other person I think has impacted the whole area of research that that you do, which is looking at the properties of the cell size, shape, geometry, and how it impacts the mechanical function of the heart and, and how it impacts. And heart is an electromechanical organ for most people. So it generates its own impulses, much like the, the only tissue outside the brain that actually has its own pacemaker that ultimately propagates the muscle uh, through the muscle layers and ultimately makes the heart contract. And there was one other person who I know you actually hold him in extremely high regard, which is Professor Max Lab of Oxford. And I think I think you need to explain. I think these are some of the stalwarts. I think people tend to forget their contributions. And I know not many people because Dr. Lab was one of those most understated yeah. scientists that you would ever meet. He would make a joker out of himself. And yeah, probably, probably one of the most creative beasts to walk the earth. I mean, so you want to say a bit more about what Dr. Max Lab actually discovered in terms of the the prop, the exact terminology, and how it impacts your research as well. So, like I said, when I was a PhD student, I got very interested in mechanoelectrical coupling and mechanotransduction. And Max wrote some very early pieces projecting out into the future the role of mechanoelectrical feedback and mechanofeedback as a regulatory mechanism in cardiac signaling and cardiac physiology, both on terms of long-scale gene expression profiles, development of the heart, uh, and, and maladaptive remodeling of the heart during disease, and also beat-to-beat -beat regulation of cardiac function. And Max was, um, I mean, he, he saw this stuff he was writing about this stuff in the 90s that here we are in 2020 that we've started to realize. I mean, he was at least a quarter of a century ahead of the field. It's unfortunate that he passed a few years ago. And it's unfortunate also that only a specialized niche, uh, older generation of cardiac physiologists realized that Max saw this. He saw it coming before the tools were there. And I think both Max and Martin Gerdes were two guys that were way far ahead of the technology development. And, you know, because after we developed, you know, the, the bioengineers, originally, you know, the engineering efforts that came out of NASA trying to develop di uh, tools to monitor uh, astronauts in microgravity, which spawned the entire revolution in electrophysiology of the 70s, that in the dawn of microelectronics, and engineers kind of came into cardiac physiology. And then also the work by Y.C. Fung that brought uh, engineers into thinking about cardiac mechanics. There was a gap on tool building between patch clamp and, um, and where we are with microphysiological systems. You could say that Western blots or ELISAs or other types of molecular biology tools were tools that helped cardiology. They certainly did, but they weren't specialized for the cardiac field. And uh, back when I was a graduate student in Ingber's group, I, I probably in John Wixell's group, I realized the utility of developing tools to answer specific questions. That's the entire reason why I went to Ingber's group, and that was to test the Martin Gurdjieff hypothesis. But all of this was turned by pieces written by Max Lab. Um, 
and talks he gave, his forward vision of where the field was going to go about mechanics. Max saw this before anybody did. I think right before he passed, the field was turning in his direction, and it's unfortunate that he didn't get to live long enough to see this and get the credit and for young scientists to understand that there was a guy who really took some scorn. I mean, the kind of stuff he was talking about in the 90s was not chic at the time as everyone was going molecular biology and people were doing a deep dive on calcium metabolism and beating that problem to death and disinterest. Um, Max was out there calling all of this, and now it's yeah, all... And I think for me, one last comment on, on Dr. Lab. I think when I when I met him at the same conference that that you you I met you uh, at the Gordon Research Conference, um, I think Dr. Lab was also there. And what he told me, and I kind of did not know that he was Max Lab, so I kind of walked up to him and I, I introduced myself. And he said, "Who are you?" And he said, "I'm Max." And then I said, "What do you work on?" And he said, "You know, when people talk about when people get cardiac arrest and somebody collapses on the floor." And somebody comes up and the best way to wake a person when they've just fallen down is to give, take your fist and give them a big thump on the chest. And what makes them wake up and come back to life is basically mechanoelectrical feedback. So I'm using the mechanical force to power up the heart back again. And that's what I study. And I said, that is the most simplest way that anybody could explain their research of what they do to to and to the stupid graduate student who did not know who Max Lab was because his picture was never shown anywhere and I never knew who he was. But it reflected Dale like this and 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 the graciousness uh, of his personality. He was he was a gracious person to young trainees. He offered me some fantastic advice and encouragement early on. I had just gotten back from the war. I uh, my first tour in Afghanistan. Just get my lab started. Max saw where I wanted to go and sat down with me at a meal at a conference and, and, and gave me some advice and encouragement. And it was very meaningful to me. I'm glad that you had that positive interaction with him, Arun. I mean, like, you'd be surprised, you know, a, a, a kind word to a young scientist or a piece of encouragement can go a long way. I mean, I still owe a debt of gratitude to Keith Burridge down there in North Carolina for an elevator ride where he was given a guest talk at Vanderbilt. And I had like basically two minutes in between floors to explain my idea about cytoskeleton arrhythmias. And he bought it and encouraged it. And um, Max Lab was that kind of guy with young people. And that was fantastic. Reflected well on him as a man and his character as well as his science. So how do you then reciprocate that now that you're in the senior PI position. And obviously I, I'm, I'm not going to be shy about this for a second, but this, this, even within the span of this conversation, we've started out with the hyper creative, the animated flow, you know, go anywhere your creativity takes you to now a very um, structured and, and, and deep dive into some of the science how, how do you, I guess my question really is twofold. How do you switch gears like that? And are people intimidate, are the scientists intimidated by the artistic side? And the second part is really, how do you, yeah. how do you make that switch? How do because they're, they're, like I said, it's demonstrable. The, the, the differences between yeah. the creative conversations and the scientific conversations, but they flow so easily. How do you, how do you switch gears and how do you share that with your, students or people in the elevator next to you on this speech? So um, 
I'm fortunate in that I've had a lot of life experiences. Uh, the Army, um, academia, spent my sabbatical time in industry at Vertex Pharma and then over at Biogen, started a couple of companies. And, um, you know, I've got a social circle of people there, folks that carry a gun for a living and folks that work in a lab for a living, people that work uh, on fashion lines. Uh, and folks that work on Wall Street and, and young and, and old, young and old entrepreneurs. So the diversity experiences I've had, I think, probably give me some communication skills. So I'm kind of a, I, I'm kind of the antithesis of a typical academic specialist, uh, and I'm very much a generalist, which sometimes is looked at in a derogatory way. I would argue that if you take a look at who's moving the needle, uh, it's the generalist. And when you think of like these people that start their companies and they break out of academia, they leave at school, it's probably because that, that specialist model, training model doesn't fit their generalist way. And the, the generalist has to integrate over lots of different disciplines in order to, to do something. So, Jojo, it's hard. I mean, I run a big group. Some people embrace the cre creative component of it. Some people, some people don't. You know, it's kind of like you're going through a buffet line. You can pick up what you want, right? Uh, I... I I definitely think those folks that kind of embrace the creative components of our laboratory tend to do better in terms of their long game, where they're going. But there are some folks that are like, they're meat and potatoes. They want to get in the lab and crank that next data point. And we need people like that in science. I hope that my group celebrates enough talent diversity that we can, we can, we can do that kind of stuff in, in, in our laboratory. Um, but, you know, I'm a complex beast, right? I mean, I, I need both of these. I need to eat both of these things. I need a balanced diet of the creativity and the, and the structure. So on any given day, you do the best you can in balancing these things. There's a certain tension between them in the laboratory. There's a tension. And um, the leadership challenge is to try to balance those things. Some days I do good at it. Some days not so good. So you do have bad days. Oh, yeah. Mostly. <laughs> my, my, I have good people in the lab and they save me from the bad days. But, you know, it's part of the learning process. You know, I'm 54 year old grown man. I'm still learning lessons about leadership. I'm still learning lessons about science. I, the main thing is, is I try to hire people that are better at me at specific scientific categories. I obviously hire artists that are much better at me than art. And so, um, you know, hiring is the most challenging thing I do. And uh, if you're always hiring people better than you, that's not a problem given my skill set, uh, you're, you're, you're going to do well. And then I guess the thing that I've been fortunate in doing, both if you take a look at the lab, if you take a look at the, uh, the worst stuff in food, if you take a look at the stuff doing in law enforcement, take a look at the battlefield, is I've been very fortunate in that I've been on good teams. Whenever I'm a success in life, both my personal life and professional life, I've, I've been a part of a good team. And um, so if I have... Any talent, it's probably a, a, a team building. I know how to get a team together, get them focused. Um, you know, I, my job as a leader is to set conditions for the team success. So I break it down to four actionable items as a leader. I spend a lot of time talking to my consultant clients about this. My primary job is to develop the vision and the direction of the team where we're going. Then I got to resource the build, build the team, recruit the team. Then I got to resource the team, go raise some money, get the gear, make sure everyone's in the right place. And then I've got to enforce the standards of excellence. And I say enforce because excellence is not a natural state, people. People are capable of it. They don't necessarily realize it, but you get a push to do that. So those are my four action items as a leader to set the conditions for success. 
it's not all about managing down. My job as a leader is to help set conditions external to the team for their success. So I'm managing a program official at NIH or a program manager at DARPA, uh, managing a relationship with the editor of a journal, peers in my field, you know, uh, an investor in a company, um, a regulatory person, whatever. I, my job is to set conditions. And if a leader, more of my job is going to be up and out rather than down. And if, if I've recruited the right people, I can spend my time focusing on setting ex conditions external to the organization for its success rather than trying to micromanage people. We thank our sponsors, Cortec. Please visit cortec-neuro.com for enabling tools for your neurophysiology research. I think one of the things that I've heard from, obviously, I don't have my PhD. I didn't have to go through that great hell. But um, I, I think one of the consistent things that I hear about the PhD program is really just continually learning how to be beat down and how to fail every single day. And I think there's a misconception that once they have obtained their PhD and, and maybe even gone through a postdoc, that sometimes or somehow that that constant confronting of failure will somehow disappear because they've gone through the program and that that part of their, their toughness is over. But it, it sounds like, I mean, it just not in a bad way, but it's, it's sort of a, a permanent state of research. So, I mean, I, I'm so glad you brought this up, Jojo, because it, I was very fortunate in that I had a, a thesis advisor, John Wixwell, who was reflective on what a PhD is. And he would say that, you know, Law school, medical school, MBA, those are states of accomplishment. The day you step on campus, you jump through hoops until you jump through your last hoop and you're gone. It's a state of accomplishment. The PhD is different, though. PhD is a state of mind. you got one hoop to jump through in terms of a qualifying exam, but you don't leave when the PhD is properly administered until you've achieved a, a state of mind. Every scientific problem that I've ever done good at solving nearly destroyed me before I did it. I mean, like I just like I felt like I was on their personal attack from it. And... If you're going to be at the cutting edge, you're going to have to embrace a certain level of discomfort as a lifestyle. I've never met an innovator who's happy. I mean, the only reason why you innovate is because something sucks and you want to fix it. You don't like something. You think, look at Elon Musk. Do you, can you possibly imagine the battles he's dealing with on two fronts? Cars and space, right? So he's going up against the mafia of the American automotive industry based in Detroit. Then in space, he's going up against a dysfunctional federal agency, NASA. Turn the business model for space on its ear. Forget the technical issues he's dealing with. This guy is fighting a full-blown jihad against entrenched bureaucracies, the likes of which most people can't possibly imagine. Um, so Elon Musk has embraced you know, the suck as a lifestyle. Uh, that's what innovators do. The technical details are fun to solve. It's the cultural challenges at NASA and Detroit that, like, is what people should admire Elon for. Uh, he's made the best car America's made in 50 years. You know? Yeah. Well, uh, and, he just yeah. turned the business model of NASA upside down. I mean, this guy is fighting some brutal battles out there, and he's embraced this discomfort as one of the requirements of pushing the needle of going forward. And so training young people, 
that in the lab, that your last easy day was yesterday um, is challenging. That when you get to Harvard, the last easy day you had was in the admissions office. It's going to get harder and harder and harder. And that reflects the frontier as you're passing through to the cutting edge. And um, some people don't want to do that. They want they want to be comfortable. That's fine. That's not really the kind of that's not why I came to Harvard. I came to Harvard because I thought this was a tool to do cool stuff. And I figured it might suck. But I came from Afghanistan. So, so I Afghanistan. Occupying Harvard is not that big of a deal. And um, I want to be at the cutting edge. So I'm just going to have to embrace a certain level of discomfort. And training young people that find value and reward in doing that is an important part of my job. So, Kit, you actually uh, take or you equate some of the things that you do on a daily basis to invading another country. I've heard you mention that that simile quite a few number of times. And no, I think it'll, no. be, it'll be both amusing as well as enlightening for people to hear why you actually draw parallels to your leadership journey, your academic journey, and everything that you do to that part of your life, which was... At the time, once it started as invading a country, and then it was it turned out into something else. So tell us a bit more about that. Um, so I gave a talk last year at, at Science Foods, a conference sponsored by Google, drawing the similarities between counterinsurgency and, and parenting. And I, what I argued was that my first counterinsurgency role model before I got to Afghanistan was my father. But you got five kids, right? Children are an insurgency. You know, they want to, like, disrupt order. They want to eat cake at every meal. I mean, every tenant of – all the tenants of counterinsurgency make for tenants of, of good parenting. you got to win legitimacy. It's you know, All the solutions are by, with, and through the people. Um, so – but in the cardiac field, if you're trying to push new ideas, for example, room like we spoke to earlier, take a look what Max was doing. Max Lab was doing. He was an insurgent. He was trying to shove a new idea um, into the canon of cardiac physiology, mechanical transduction. You know, he what he was doing was uh, meant to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted, um, and that's what. Judah Folkman did with angiogenesis and tumor biology. The whole idea, let's choke off the tumor by killing the blood vessels. So new ideas in any field, you can borrow from the model of insurgents to do this. I mean, we're in the United States. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a couple miles away from the seaport where the, the, the most successful insurgency in the history of mankind was launched. A bunch of Boston Patriots dumping tea into the ocean. I mean, that kind of uh, insurgency movement is what gave birth to America, you know. So in Boston, that's the place to do this kind of thing. And um, so whenever you're trying to bring a new idea into a scientific field, you can borrow from the ideas of, a, of an insurgency. Um, and the funny thing is, is when I push ideas, try to push ideas into the cardiac field, uh, I see some of the stalwarts in the field um, acting like counterinsurgents, trying to suppress the new ideas. And um, there's, there are certain areas of the cardiac field we can talk about explicitly if you want, where you definitely see new ideas are being put down by people that have been in the field for a long time. And that's bad for the field. It's not evolving the field. But um, 
It's all about state of mind. And in Afghanistan, we talked about installing the rule of law in civil society. It was about trying to change a mindset from a cultural uh, legal system that was really part of the dysfunction, which is underlined, under, uh, underlined um, Afghanistan's dysfunction since Genghis Khan went in there, or Alexander the Great to today. Um, you know, we were trying to move it in a different direction. And um, it's not going to happen in Afghanistan. Uh, I said it in 2003, and at the end of my first tour, it's not going to happen now. The best thing we can do is keep terrorism from coming out of there. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it is. Maybe it's in the water. But um, uh, I have more hope for the scientists in my laboratory where I've got to change their mindset. And the world is not going to be as clean as a homework problem in Cartesian coordinates. You're, you're not the specialty... This specialty model of training is not going to help you really impact the world in the broadest sense. Um, you're going to have to think of transdisciplinary approach. The solution set's not going to be in the back of the book. you got to go where there's nothing and you got to make something. That expeditionary mindset, the audacity required to do that, takes some cultivation. And that's what you try to do in the laboratory. So tell us a bit more about that black container that's behind you kit and and wh- what do you do with that? that that's not that's not something to bake car tissue is it no that's a 300 pound handmade ceramic barbecue smoker that we made when i taught a barbecue class here a few years ago at harvard i i'll tell you the story behind it i was in 2000 december 2010 i was at the liberty bowl in memphis uh I was gonna watch vanderbilt play at the university of cincinnati and before the game there was a barbecue contest in the in the parking lot and i'm walking around looking at the contestants and they had it basically looked like they were cooking their meat in different forms of a trash can. And it, I'm like, do we not understand the fundamental laws of smoking meat? Uh, no one understands the best way to smoke a brisket. So I just kind of picked up – at first it was just out of curiosity. So whenever I – I spent the whole football game thinking about those barbecue smokers. Couldn't get out of my head. This is, this is a Harvard professor thinking about how to do a smoky barbecue and his primary area of research – is cardiac biomechanics. This is a Southerner thinking about what's on his plate. That's a totally different frame of reference. Fair point. Fair point. Between you and I, we have food in common. Suggest the urgency of the problem, right? So I just, I started about a three-year journey whenever uh, of going and talking to barbecue pit masters. It started off as like a hobby. Like I, I'd stop at a barbecue joint and I'd say, you know, because I'm down south quite a bit to visit family. We got a farm down there in West Tennessee. I'd stop at a barbecue joint and say, hey, I want to talk to the pit master and ask him about what they're doing. And then it got to the point where I, I'd go out to San Diego and give a talk about neuroscience. I'd stay over an extra day so I could track down the local barbecue joints, right? And I'd hear about the place down in South Alabama that had good pulled pork, some roadside stand, and I'd go out of my way to go talk to them. And, you know, I got to the point where, like, I would – I'd go into, I realized how to do it. I'd show up at a barbecue joint about 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. So after the lunch rush, before the dinner rush. You know, and I'd, I'd walk into the barbecue joint, you know, order a plate of ribs, and I'd say, hey, can I talk to the pit master? You know, big old pot belly guy come out of the back, and I'd say, hey, I'm a professor at Harvard. I'm doing some research on barbecue. Would you talk to me for a minute? And you're like, get out of here. He'd start to walk away. And so I'd, I'd pick up my business card and just slide across the table. So, look, if you change your mind, I'd love to talk, talk with you for a moment. So, this is a true Harvard professor. This is not a scam. Yeah, not- <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I get my business card, that made it legit, I guess, right? So, um, so then they'd sit down and they'd tell me their story. 
you know, uh, we talk about barbecue, we talk about life, we talk about how, you know, swine flu impacted the meat processing plants and they lost their profit margins on their pulled pork and how drought out west were reducing the availability of a brisket. We talked about the technical issues of this. We talked about, hey, how'd you get into this? Well, I uh, lost my job and my daddy had always smoked a whole hog barbecue. And so I got into doing this to make a little extra money and now it's my job, right? And um, it's amazing stories. I should have blogged about it. I should have wrote a book about it. I should have done like a uh, a, a, a Netflix piece on this because I learned so much about America about three years. But at the time, one of my cousins, Peyton Neesmith, an MD, PhD student in my lab, now he's a medical resident down there at Johns Hopkins, was in my lab. And, you know, we're Southerners, big barbecue fans. We started talking about this. Hey, man, I think I can teach a class on this. There's so much science behind this barbecue because really what you're trying to do is break down this really tough collagen network. And I thought, I spent my entire career as a bioengineer trying to build collagen networks to build tissue. Now i got to break that network down in order to eat it. Because, you know, brisket's a tough cut of meat. It's got all this collagen. If you had to eat brisket to survive and you couldn't smoke it, you'd starve to death because it takes so long to chew it and break it down. Hmm. So Peyton and I taught a class at Harvard, got a lot of attention. We filed a patent on a barbecue smoker design and gave birth to a company called Dezora, uh, which is over in Kendall Square. We're the only barbecue company in in Kendall Square, we're surrounded by all the pharma companies, biotech companies, and we design smokers. We sell them with Kamado Joe, and we also now have indoor grills. So um, everything I learned about building tissues, engineer, tissue engineering, was directly applicable to barbecue. If you just change the signs from positives to negatives on all the equations, because then you're trying to break down the exocellular matrix networks. And so that's what we did. So is the smoke shop barbecue, is that part of your... Um, is empire. that the barbecue? Is, is that part of your empire? No, no, yeah, we got a barbecue company. We, we, it's it's okay. not a restaurant. It's like we design cooking technology. They're cooking something every uh, all the time. I was over there Friday, and uh, even the interns can smoke a pork shoulder that will blow you away. So we had like uh, cabbage wraps of pulled pork, you know, because you can only eat so much. So much. You got to get a vegetable in there every once in a while. But we've smoked everything over there at the company. Gators, kangaroos, cauliflower, pumpkins. I mean, you name it, we've smoked it over there. And um, it's been a lot of um lot of lot of lot lot of lot of lot of fun doing it. Also putting a lot of so, tell us the name of the company one more time, Kit, so that people can Desora. actually D E S O R A dot C O Desor dot core. Okay. I have I have I know we have a guest who's got a very important question for you, but I have three quick ones for you. When it comes to barbecue, mm -hmm. they're in quick succession here. Beef or pork, dry rub or sauce, and in San Diego, Phil's Barbecue or Fat Ivers? So I, I'd i have to go back and check my notes. can't recall which one in, in San Diego I visited. I might visit both of them. I can't recall because I, I mean, it's three years of, of traveling the country talking to pitmasters. Uh, I talked to a lot of them, so I, so I don't recall which. I, I, I can't tell. Fox Brothers in Atlanta, love that. There's a great barbecue scene in in, in New York City. Um, I uh, there's you know Austin's got besides Franklin's, there's Salt Lake. There's all kinds of cool places down there. There's a little barbecue stand with no name in South Alabama, just south of Montgomery. As you drive down to Destin, they got the best pulled pork I've ever seen. Lexington, Tennessee, whole hard barbecue in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. There's some great places out there. These are the ones that just come to my mind off the top of it. But, Sauce is for cornbread. If you do your dry rub right on your barbecue or if you smoke it with one of the smokers that we designed, you don't need sauce. It's going to be nice and moist. 
Go buy one of the Kamado Joe smokers. It's got our patent in there. You don't need sauce. You can make that sauce and dip in corn. I make my own sauces. It's pretty good. After we taught the class, we got a lot of press, BBC, Wired News, New York Times. All these people started sending me. I got all kinds of barbecue sauces here. People have been sending me over the years to test out. And I'd gone and gotten certified as a Kansas City Barbecue League judge, Kansas City Barbecue Society barbecue judge. And so yeah, I've judged some barbecue. I've had people send me sauces. Dry rub. Do it the way they do it. Rendezvous down in Memphis. Uh, dry rub those ribs. You'll be fine if you cook it right. All right. And I think we have we have someone special who'd like to ask a question, too. Uh, probably the most important question of the day. Please. Absolutely. So for the listeners, this is my eight-year-old, nine-year-old now. And uh, it's important to get your age right, isn't it? Okay. We need to talk so that people can hear you because they can't. People can't see it. They only hear it. Yeah. Do you, how do you know Kit, Amir? I saw you talking to Kit and then I came and said hi. And I thought it was funny when he said his name was like a first name Kit. And then I asked you to show me what work he does at Harvard. And I found it to be quite interesting. Is it because your family doesn't provide better entertainment than watching me on the Internet? Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, that is a yes. Yeah, I knew the answer to that one. No, you you only, as I said, uh, you only rank second to Pokemon in terms of YouTube watch lists. So I just hey, want hey, to hey, that's, high praise. that's high praise. I'm grateful for that. So you have, you wanted to ask Kit something, isn't it? Yeah. What would you like to ask Kit? Um, I have a question for you. Okay. In your videos, you describe how cuttlefish was an inspiration for you to teach a class at Harvard. How did you go from cuttlefish to fashion? From cuttlefish to fashion? That's a great question. So when I was in the war in 2009, we were wearing these uniforms that were kind of pixelated. They were blue, and I was in the desert or in the mountains in the snow, and they just didn't give us the kind of camouflage that we wanted to have. And so I think that camouflage and fashion are the inverse of each other because in camouflage, I don't want anybody to see me. But in fashion, I want people to see me and I want to make a statement. So I assume that these two problems are the inverse of each other. So I got interested in fashion. I'd always been kind of interested in couture fashion because I wanted to develop a camouflage that people wouldn't be able to see me. And so it turns out the cuttlefish will do its own camouflage. So when it doesn't want to be seen by a predator, but when it wants to signal somebody that they like, they can also change their skin color to do that too. So they can do both camouflage or they can do fashion to make a statement. So that's why we started doing a project on the cuttlefish in our laboratory because both camouflage and fashion. And almost every project in my lab is based on spite or a vendetta. So, so I had told this idea to a government agency years ago that to develop good camouflage, we should go to the fashion industry and that we should ask them what their lessons learned were and invert them and apply them to camouflage. And they thought I was crazy. So I rounded up a bunch of 20-year-old kids at Harvard to show them up. And that's what we did with this project. Is there some place where where we can check in on the on the fashion project? So the um, 
we taught a couple of classes on that. One, we worked with the designers with Darte to uh, develop interactive uh, technologies inspired by the cuttlefish, but we used uh, fiber optics and radio transmitters and biosensors. The last time um, I did a project, I taught a class on neuroscience a couple of years ago, it was on the neuroscience of, of, of fashion. Uh, I think that the way the retina develops in the first six months postpartum is reason why we like certain fashions. And you could take a look. I think the tuxedo is the perfect fashion. It was developed around 1818. It literally hasn't changed. It's black on white. It's high con visual contrast. So you don't have all these weird psychophysical, psychophysical effects. It's basically Cartesian geometries, and the eye is designed to detect straight edge. So uh, I constantly talk with my friend Tori Burks that I think I can design the perfect dress, the dress that you you're biologically wired to like, you cannot not like it. And there is something very close to that. It's called the little black dress. And if you take a look across all cultures with the exception of the African continent, all cultures and much of time, there's some version of the little black dress. It's not always little, but there's some version of that because it's high contrast, Cartesian geometries. But if you go to Africa and take a look at fashion history there, you see lots of bright whites and yellow dresses. And that's because... You know, because if you have a lot of pigment in your skin, the contrast is a little bit different. It's reflected. So um, I do have Parker's fashion theory, and uh, I'm just waiting for Tori to turn me loose with some of her designers and see if we can come up with the, with the perfect dress. I, I always contend that Vegas nerve stimulation is the little black dress of Neurotech. It's, mm, it's the, yeah. the snake oil that everybody says can cure everything and everyone needs a little black dress to, to wear. To I'd love to do a piece where you do the quest for the perfect dress um, and then see if we can take best dress at the Met Ball. If you take a look at that best dress at the Met Ball a few years ago, they had the woman was wearing all the optical fibers. I argued that was a knockoff of one of our dresses. We did that dress three years before in my fashion class and I uh, got a little bit of press coverage for it, but uh, we did ours in 90 days. Um, with 20-year-old uh, college students that had no background in, in, in sewing, and they did a really awesome job. That dress, that one best dress a few years ago, was a magnificent piece by a designer, but I, I like to think that it was a bit of a knockoff of what we'd done. I'm in control for saying that. We'll see. So, Kit, I actually have another... Uh, I want to ask you about another concept that you wonderfully use, and in terms of your your academic kind of lab and projects, as well as in terms of your application in Army. And also more recently, when you and I were talking before about uh, during our sabbatical as well, which is to look at after action review. And I think a lot of people and coming from the industry, I know a lot of people do after action review, but yeah. I think you have a very definite way having employed it both in the army as well as outside that you believe that after action review is a must for everything that we do, both good and the bad, but tell us how to properly do it. So I'll tell you where I got this idea and I got it on the battlefields of Afghanistan, but the company that first realizes was Vertex Pharma, you know, Vertex is a very progressive. Um, I mean, you want to talk about a company with audacity and innovation. I mean, that's Vertex, right? So they brought me over there the idea was to examine an FDA filing because that's their version of a strategic battle. Lives are literally on the line. Um, the strategic assets investment of the company is on the line. It's like the analogies to a battle like we might fight in Afghanistan or the, or the global war on terror are the same. 
and Vertex turned me loose to examine that. We did an analysis of an FDA filing. Um, I wrote like a, basically we went through everything that happened step by step. We interviewed everybody. We developed a timeline of the entire thing. We looked at everything that did went right. And those things, there were the opportunities for improvement. And we wrote it. And to my knowledge, uh, Vertex has not had a, 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 um, a, a trouble with the FDA filing since then. They've been very successful and all that. And you can see since the 2016, 2017, when we implemented that, you can see what's happened with the, with the share price over there, Vertex and the clinical approvals. They, they're doing good. They're saving a lot of people's lives over there. So the idea is the after action review is a tool for leaders. They've got a team. Their team performs some type of action. Uh, they have an objective that they're trying to uh, achieve, right? And so the team goes through a process to achieve this objective, and they either succeed or fail. And you want to do the after-action review no matter what. You want to replicate all of the result, uh, the, the timeline of everything that happened. You want to talk about the good things that happened and why those good things happened. Are you identifying core competencies you didn't know? Or are you identifying core competencies you trained really well to? And that training needs to be reinforced with a positive lesson learned. Or And you also look at, at the negatives. What were the things that should have been done better? Why were they bad? Were they bad because of poor training or because of poor processes? Now, as the leader, I'm going to take those two components and they're going to set my agenda for training and instrumenting my team with proper standard operating procedures. So it's really important to do this. And I'm going to tell you, usually I do one-on-one interviews with lots of people. I can do a formal way. I can do it an informal way when I do these reports. And, um, you know, everything's situationally dependent. I've had situations where I was doing an after-action review for a company, and I thought it would be better for the leader if we did not outbrief this. And I went to the leader and gave them an alternative course of action to the after-action review that I thought would be best if they follow. Um, so it's you, for your client, my clients, you got to be situationally dependent. But it's important for that leader to have this as a tool. And I'll tell you the thing that jams up people the most. The main thing that jams people up is a lack of clear understanding of the mission statement on day one. And the, and if you and if the Various component parts of the multifunctional team within a company don't have a, a, a common operating picture of what's going to be done, why it's going to be done, how it's going to be done, and when it's going to be done by, and what this, you know, how it also implies the standard. That's where the problems come. That's where the dysfunction comes. It's, you'll never achieve unity of effort towards your team's objective if everyone doesn't understand the common mission statement. So for the leader, that mission statement five W's and the H, who, what, when, where, where, who, when, what, where, why, and how are the most important thing you can do on day one. And that mission statement might evolve a little bit as you do the mission analysis, critically important. And subsequently, we have applied this to, with my clients to FDA filings. Business development deals is a ripe opportunity because everyone's got emotions after a BD deal in licensing of a molecule or technology or an acquisition deal. Clinical trials, opening up a clinical trial site is just like invading a country um, where you hope to have host nation support. So doing after action reviews on opening up a clinical trial site is a really important thing. Any type of collaborative agreement with academics, projects, 
These are important things to do after action reviews are. It's part of adaptive learning for your organization. It sets the training agenda for leaders. I know everyone's busy. You always have time to train. You always have time to train people. If you are a startup company and you're making your first FDA filing and you've done no training, you got a problem. And so one of the biggest opportunities you have as a leader is to develop ongoing training and developing training exercises. And where I feel like one of the biggest challenges we have in academia, based on my time in, in supporting industry, starting companies and consulting to companies, is we do a poor job of training people on how to do planning. Planning is one of the biggest problems. So the exercise that I do every year in my classes now is I make them plan a bathroom break. You've been going to the bathroom your whole life, haven't you, Joe? Absolutely. You ever planned it? Nope. Probably not. No, on a road trip. The, last, the last time I had a class do this, it took them weeks to plan it to any type of military precision. And, and I said, the reason why I'm making you plan this this bathroom break, you have timeline, rehearsals, recon, uh, courses of action, alternative courses of action at the clean ladies in there. What happens if you go in there and there's no toilet paper, the soaps aren't working, and I'm dictated a hygiene standard? Is for you to war game everything that could go wrong because I'm going to give you 15 minutes and then we're going to start executing this class again. And everyone's like, oh, this is silly, this is silly, this is silly because I make them do a PowerPoint brief and then I make them execute and then we do after action review. And everyone's like, why do you do the bathroom break? Why do you do the bathroom break? Because if you step in as a leader of a team on day one, you need to do a diagnostic of your team. That's very simple. And what happens, the biggest problem with this planning exercise is that everyone, one of the things you do when you do a mission analysis in the military is you come up with a list of your facts and your assumptions. And the problem with adults is they make assumptions and they drift into the fact category. And every time these plans go sideways, it's because something in their fact category was, in fact, not a fact. So the idea is to question your assumptions and make that part of your iterative planning process. And I want my students, no matter what team they take command of or lead of, on day one, they need to do a diagnostic of who can I count on, who's got insights, who can plan, who can execute, who can problem analyze, and who cannot. I need to assess problem analysis skills and situational awareness right away in my team. So on the first exercise I do when I take charge of a team, plan a bathroom break. So I can see how it works really well in a well-primed, well-trained team. But I've also seen evidence of this go bad when you kind of do the diagnostics. So I just want to pick on that because I think there's something that people need to appreciate here. And that's why I'm asking you this question, Kit, that when people do the diagnostic, they can go to a level, and this can be anything, as you said, they can go to a level where they analyze and then they go into analysis paralysis where they just figure out that there's a mountain of problems yeah. and then the problems becomes larger than what, what what they are actually trying to solve. And how do you how do you try to avoid that? How do you so first maintain of all you do the picture? First of all, you do it as a team because everyone brings a different lens to the problem, and that's you know the diversity of your team is the is the it might be the management challenge, but it is the strength of the team, right? So they all bring a different lens to the problem, and hopefully they'll prevent it from getting stalled up. But as you, as a leader who's kind of the observer controller of the exercise, you might need to go into a coaching mode and say, "Listen, you're down in the weeds on this." Um, 
But one of it's that you develop a planning timeline so you give them some time hacks and you don't let them go down those rabbit holes. So, yeah, I mean, you have a go as a leader, you go into kind of a coaching mode. You primarily want to be observing, but you might have to step in and control to prevent them from going down the wrong way. Um, but and then it's important in the after action review that you you make them aware of your intervention. You're aware of your mention. Because when you're going where there's nothing and 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 trying to make something, you're trying to do something that's never been done before. The reason why you're making all these assumptions during the bathroom break planning exercise is because you've been going to the bathroom all your life. You pick a group of third graders to do this exercise, they're going to do it better than professionals every day. Because they're quick to notice, oh, there's no soap in the dispenser. I can't reach the sink to wash my hands. What about if there's enough toilet paper? Hey, is there a footstool to help me get up there on the toilet? They haven't been going to the bathroom as long as we have, right? So they don't make all their brains aren't littered with all these assumptions about what it takes to go to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom when you're in first grade, that's a major activity. That requires some analysis. It might even be somewhat stressful going to the bathroom in your public school for the first time. So these assumptions about things, especially making assumptions about something you've never done before, can jack you up pretty quick. So the whole idea is to let people start analyzing problems and understand the difference between facts and assumptions that right away, that's important. And I think there is a military um, saying, and you'll know, of course, better than I, but it's something like uh, piss poor planning on your part yeah. does not constitute an emergency on my part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, at one of the things I've realized in my consulting to companies is my own failure as part of the academy to properly train people that can grow into the VP level. So the VP level, I mean, like when we train academics, to train them not to get the first faculty position. The, the goal is to get you tenure and understand all the intangibles you got to require because you're not going to be at the bench anymore when you're a professor. You got to start thinking strategically about running a research group. So for me, when I go out there and I see companies growing a vice president, it's the, it's the same thing as growing a one-star general in the military, right? Because once you get the VP, you your technical specialty won't float you anymore. You have to be broadly aware of the entire enterprise. You might be in R&D. You got to be able to work with regulatory, commercial, your logistics people. You got to understand a piece of every part of the puzzle. And so the technical specialist in some of these tech companies I've worked with, they can fake it through assistant director, director, maybe even senior director. But where you're going to see them crash and burn is when they get the VP. So how do you grow a VP at a biotech company? How do you grow a, a VP at Google? How do you grow a, a VP at, at, at Raytheon? you got to have a – how do we grow a general? We give them a wealth of experiences, both in terms of leadership and staff, across the broader enterprise so that they're aware of a little bit of everything so that they can integrate all of this into that general leadership. There's a reason why we call the, them a general, general leadership. They have to be generally responsible for the entire enterprise. Same thing with a VP at a tech company. they got to understand a little bit of everything. And so one of the things I think companies should do is think about, like, how are we growing our own VPs? Because, you know, if you're a biotech company and you want to dilute your, your, co your culture, your mojo, I mean, Jojo, you're from San Francisco. One of the most famous case studies in pharma industry is what happened when Genentech, which had an extraordinary track record and culture, and they were finally subsumed by Roche. And what happened to that special culture at Genentech there? And I'm sure there's a lot of Genentech refugees there that talk about the good old days of Genentech. It was always before Roche, right? So if you want to be a company and hire your VPs from Roche or Pfizer because of their 
technical capabilities, although they've handled the FDA filing before, they've run a clinical trial before, that's fine, but you're going to dilute your, your culture. And one of the things I've noticed about you know my favorite company I've ever consulted with was Vertex, because there's a very unique culture at Vertex Pharma. They've written some books on that for a reason. Uh, they're cowboys, and they pride themselves on that. And there's a lot of patients alive because of that mentality and that audacity. And um, so for a company like that that's got a real culture, you want to grow those vice presidents organically, and you got to think about the development exercises or opportunities to, to grow them up and broaden them beyond their technical specialty. Okay, that's that's awesome. I think there's definitely a lot of food for thought. Um, there is uh, one more, I think, one of the most incredible devices. There was one time I came to your lab um, along with, uh, with another colleague of mine uh, from GSK when I was working for them. And you weren't there in the lab. So the only thing that I got to see was a cotton candy machine. Uh, and yeah. I think, um, and I just want you to kind of tell people, why do you have cotton candy machine in your lab? Well, this was another uh, tragic situation that led to innovation. Uh, I saw a child that had um, uh, been burned to death in Afghanistan, and uh, I got there right after the child had been burned, uh, basically burned from from the toes up to about the uh, chest level. Uh, as soon as I saw the child, the child was screaming. Uh, the smell was something I'll never forget. I knew there was too much surface area. I knew the kid wasn't going to survive. It was a really violent situation. There was a lot happening. Um, and uh, the kid died. Uh, and, you know, you don't leave something like that behind. I mean, that, yeah. that scars you forever. And so I couldn't get that kid out of my mind for a long time. Uh, you're never going to get something like that out of your mind. The screams, the pain uh, the kid was experiencing, your own rage and and. and heartbrokenness i'd start thinking about wound healings for burns after i mean that kid wasn't going to survive there's too much surface area and i start thinking about burn dressings and i start thinking about extra matrix and nanofibers and um we had that i had this idea that i could make nanofibers out of a cotton candy machine watching these things go around put these fibers and be something like like um cotton candy and uh so the idea, though, was to use extracellular matrix protein called fibronectin. Turns out that if you do a surgery on a baby while they're still in the womb, when they're born, there's no scar or very little scar, and it's because there's a lot of fibronectin in their skin, and the amount of fibronectin in your skin goes down as you grow older. So the idea was, can we make a wound dressing out of fibronectin? And fibronectin is a globular protein, right? Um, it's not used as an engineering substrate, very difficult to manufacture. And the idea was, make this cotton candy machine as you shoot this stream of fibronectin through a nozzle, the protein would unfold and then bind and form a fibronectin fiber. Mohammed Badarasme developed this technique with Josh Goss to make nanofibers out of a cotton candy machine. Then Christophe Chantre and my group uh, really kind of got the ball across the finish line in terms of developing these wound dressings for, um, for wounds where we have effectively scarless wound healing with fibronectin nanofibers. Now we're looking at, uh, with our, some surgical partners over at Mass General Hospital, going to larger animals. We start a whole new thing of developing wound dressings with nanofibers with that cotton candy machine. So it was a, it was a heartbreaking incident that kind of catalyzed the innovation. But now we're doing with these nanofibers. We're making wound dressings, heart valves for babies, Kevlar body armor for for, for soldiers, 
um, and uh, all kinds of other cool things, including stuff in fashion. So that was well, and I think that that's why that's why I think it makes me say this, uh, Kit. That's that's why I feel that you're special. I think you're special because of your resilience, and you're special because of your resilience that's paired with and understanding the need to help people through your work. And I think you are tooling the group or you're equipping your group to kind of understand these problems, which I think it's very hard for someone who is probably, I can probably imagine that not everybody is built the same, but I think uh, the ability that you use to bring people along to kind of go on this journey with you for a societal problem that probably is not necessarily just a first world problem is is something that I think makes you special. And I think that's why, to me, you're a source of inspiration on, on that front. Well, I, I obviously don't feel special. My daughter's 12, so she'll tell you I'm not special now. But I've been on some special teams. There's no doubt about it. I got some pipe hitters over there in that lab, and they've taken on some problems that I've brought back to the lab as their own, and they've made great progress. I'm looking at people like Grant Gonzalez, Mohamed Badarosman, Christoph Chantre, um, Sean Cook on. I mean, some folks who have thrown down on some problems because they realized they had an opportunity to alleviate some human suffering. And so um, I am a, a piece of a great team. I'm a small piece, but uh, uh, great teams. But I want to say something else to this. You know, in this, I want to talk about creativity and innovation for just a second. Emotion is part of the creative process. I was broken by that kid who got burned. And the events that happened immediately thereafter are probably not stuff you want to discuss on this podcast, but it was rough. And um, for me and all the guys who were there, and um, you see a lot of heartbreaking things in a war. And, um, you know, whether it's a whimsical day at the New England Aquarium with my daughter, or if it's a heartbreaking thing of seeing something bad happen to a child, you've got to embrace the emotional component of the creative process that drives innovation. You've got to do that. And we sanitize a workplace where no one wants to have their feelings hurt. No one wants to be challenged. Everyone wants a safe space where they feel absolutely nothing except congratulations for being who they are. That's not the way the world works. I tell my artists when we do a piece of art for behind some of the science, I said, your job is to show the emotion of the creative process that potentiated this project. You got to do that. We have to understand that innovators are not happy when it gets started. I might have a whimsical idea, having fun eating barbecue or with my daughter to a new aquarium, but more than likely, if it's a medical thing, it's because someone saw someone suffer. And they are not willing to accept that as part of the human condition. And they're going to go in the lab and they're going to beat that problem down until they come up with a solution for that patient. Yeah. And, and that person who can translate that emotion into action is not going to be sitting around watching CNN and Netflix during COVID. Someone who's not going to watch this kind of crap happen on the news. They're going to go in the lab or start a company and they're going to throw down that problem. That's the kind of teammate I want to have. I want to be on their team. And so that's what we've created in the, in the disease biophysics group at Harvard. Yeah. So I think in, in addition now to planning, we can add resolve. Yeah. Yeah. Don't quit. So, don't quit. So at what point has, has luck played a part in your success? <laughs> Every day you're in combat and, 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 
for some reason you zig instead of zag, and because you zig, you survive, you dodge a bullet, right? You know, you're lucky because you barely graduated from college, but uh, 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 Al Strauss, who was chair of the mechanical engineering department at Vanderbilt, decided to take a chance on me and let me in on a trial basis. You're, you're lucky because you have an advisor like John Wixo who let me spend a lot of time in graduate school to, to get as good as I was. you got a guy like Don Ingber who's lucky enough to, after he turns you down, sees that you might come anyway and decides to invite you in. I mean, I'm lucky to have all these young people that have joined my lab over the years. People like Born DeBerry, Peyton Neesmith, Nick Geisey, Mark Bray, Sean Sheehy, Megan McCain, all these folks who've been great partners with me. I mean, like, there, luck is part of it every day. I mean, like, it's, there's no way around it. I mean, I've just been a lucky bastard. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, Kit, I think there is one last thing that, that Jojo and I, I think, want to pick on. That was something when we spoke before, before the podcast, I think you kind of, suggested that I bring this up. So I am going to take you up on this and, and bring this up, which is that you believe that scientists and engineers, uh, who are the people that you interact with on a daily basis, apart from the artists, have a role to play in managing people, which you so eloquently described. Uh, but more importantly, you felt that there was a larger role for a scientist and, and or an engineer to play in the human resources side of things and how that yeah. should be portrayed or be be kind of made uh, into a very unique type of capability within an organization. But why don't you talk us through that? So I have a lot of discussions with this with a mentor of mine, Professor Andre Kleber, who Arun, you might know from his cardiac work. Um, he was also a Swiss Army officer. And we talk quite a bit about the role of leadership and scientific responsibility. Um, of, of leaders and that kind of knowledge. I mean, there's, I mean, look, if you want to hire scientists, don't let HR do it. Let a scientist do it. And scientists uh, in organizations should volunteer to take rotations in their HR department so they can pull the kind of people in that they want to have. I mean, whether you're HR at a company or if you're a scientist who's doing like some type of, of leadership role in, in society and politics, uh, the military or whatever, that's important. I mean, you learn a lot from science besides just the details. You learn problem-solving school skills. Nowadays, you know, my scientist friends are the most uh, people that are most adaptable to the globalization because this is what we've been doing forever. We work across cultures. We appreciate each other and what they bring to the table. So, like, no one's better equipped for globalization than, 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 than scientists. That's just the way it gets done. It comes with the dinner in science. So, um, I think that scientists and their skill sets, both soft and hard skill sets, have the opportunity to be great leaders. Why isn't that always the case? Why aren't you seeing more scientists in Congress? Why aren't you seeing more scientists in Parliament? Um, why aren't you seeing more scientists in militaries around the country? I'm not quite sure. I mean, we developed this specialization model of training for people. And they go into the lab and they want to just be left alone with their science pro problem and they never grow into that leadership role. Maybe it's because we don't, you know, encourage the soft skill development of these scientists to be leaders. But, um, 
you know, I've been very fortunate to have some great role models that have cultivated me. I had uh, some great role models as soldier scholars um, um, and, and that have kind of guided me um, uh, as my career as, as both a military officer and as a scientist. It's so important that you as a scientist represent your responsibility to identify and develop young talent and help them project further than you. You know, uh, talking about developing young people, I had my first impression at Children's Hospital when I got there to do my postdoc was something I'll never forget. I got off the elevator on the floor where Judah Folkman's laboratory was, and the first thing you saw when you got the elevator was this frame signed with headshots of every one of his trainees who was a member of the National Academy. And that sign said two things. A, this is where the bar is in this group. We grow young people. We expect you to go out there and be a leader and be the best. And number two, look whose house you're in. This is power, right? That framed image of, of, of Folkman was famous for cultivating his young people was one of the most impressive lessons learned I have for what makes a great scientist. No one's going to remember your science or nature papers. The, your legacy in science is the people that you train and develop. And it's the same thing at a company, the same thing in a company. You grow good talent and you put them out there. And they take on leadership positions, maybe at your company, maybe at other companies. Well, I, Dr. Parker, I just so much appreciate your time and this journey from military to fashion to building human hearts and playing with Play-Doh. And you've got me hungry for some barbecue. I got tired. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate y'all letting me uh, talk about uh, some of the people that have been on my teams that have done some really cool stuff, and I'm really proud of them all. And I'm also very grateful to the mentors and role models I've had over the years. Thanks for letting me talk about them. It's been a pleasure, and thank you so much. Sure. Thanks. Appreciate it. And Arun, tell your daughter I said thank you for her question. Important for young I people will. to find their voice and hold us old folks uh, accountable to decisions, make us account for our activities. I think that's awesome. Next I'm time y'all are going by the lab and bring her by. Bring her by the lab. I, I will. I definitely will. And I think just, just a parting thought for me, Kit. Watching you and the, the time that I've spent talking with you has been, has always been, uh, you've always encouraged me. And I think that's the first thing that I've taken. If someone like you, who has absolutely no resemblance in terms of what I, what I look like, feel like, and, and what I do in terms of my work, can can understand and, and encourage me. I think that is something that has has kind of inspired me a lot. Uh, so I, I continue to do the same, taking a leaf out of your book. So thank you so yeah, much. And I hope I'm more people can learn from this attitude. I'm, I'm humbled by this compliment. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I, I hope you realize I don't, I don't take credit for that. I've, I've been fortunate. I'm a sum of all these people who've, who've taken an interest in me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for everything and we try to pay it forward, right? Yeah, and, and it's it's our duty to pay forward, right? And 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 bring up the next generation of scientists. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Hey Jojo, next time you're in Boston, come on by the lab. There's always something crazy happening in there. All right. You can count on it. Absolutely. All right. All right. Hey, y'all take care and have a good day. Our sound editor is Sainten Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acidat. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. Our main sponsor is Cortec, 
You can find their information at cortec-neuro.com. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.